right? One of the favorite things I like to do with my kids when it's time to get in bed is, you know, it's, it's tough to wrangle the kids down. Those of you who have kids and get them to uh, hop in the bath and then brush their teeth and then get to the bed, right? And so one of the uh, life hacks I've learned, parents, is that you just make it a game. <laughs> and you say, hey, first one to get into the bath wins. <laughs> and they'll run to the bath. Hey, first one to brush their teeth wins. And they'll go brush their teeth. First one to hop in the bed They'll go run a hop in the bed, and the first one wins. They, they, they want to feel the gratification of winning something. And this is true for every single one of us. But what's also true is that most of us also like to win at all costs. And this is where we get into a little bit of trouble, right? When my kids, when I say, hey, first one to get in your bed wins, two of them at least will sprint down the hallway. Our hallway's fairly narrow, and what ends up happening is that one of them grabs one by the shirt and pulls them down to the ground. The other one gets ahead, and then she grabs the ankle, <laughs> right? And she comes falling to the ground, and then she hops over, and she runs into the bed, and then you hear, Dad, 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 so-and-so cheated. I was going to be first in the bed. Riley grabbed my ankle, and now she's in the bed. This is what happens, right? Most of us want to win, and most of us want to win uh, at all costs. It's true of me as well. Uh, my dad's in town. We were playing uh, this game called Phase 10. Anybody play Phase 10 in here? Uh, it's an amazing game. It's really fun. It's super simple, but it, it, it's also a really fun game to play. Uh, there's these 10 phases on this card, and you have to work your way through these 10 phases. First one to, you know, all, to, to, to complete all 10 phases wins the game. You've got to get rid of your cards. It's, it's a really fun game. And I'm sitting here across the table from my wife and my dad. I'm playing this game, and I'm tempted to cheat. <laughs> I'm tempted to cheat. I'm, I'm like, yo, okay, I don't have the two sets of three or whatever, but if I like slide one card underneath, they're not going to see if I slide one card underneath and put the thing down. Like, they're not going to come over here and check through my cards and make sure it's right. I'm tempted to cheat because I want to be the one that wins. This is true for all of us, right? And, and in society, we tend to like this. We tend to like it in the workplace. We tend to like it in the world around us that we, we have this idea and concept that, yo, we want to be winners. We want to push the business forward. We want to have the most outstanding family. We want to succeed in education. We want to succeed in sport. We want to do all these things. And so this is actually an admirable quality in our culture. But there's one case of win-at-all-cost scenario that I'll never forgive. Uh, those of you who are sports fans in here, you'll know this. It was when Kevin Durant went to the Golden State Warriors back in 2016. Okay, those of y'all who don't know, the Golden State Warriors, before Kevin Durant, who is the man and arguably the greatest scorer uh, in our time today, uh, he was playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And the Golden State Warriors had this team of Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Klay Thompson, all these different cats, and they were the best team in the league before they got Kevin Durant. And now they don't lose any of the major players, and they add Kevin Durant, and now it's just like off the charts, y'all. I know some of y'all filming here, some of y'all do not, but that's okay, all right? We're gonna, we're gonna get through this in a minute. But what happened was, you know, Kevin Durant comes to the team. The Golden State Warriors had the best record in NBA history the year before. They didn't need Kevin Durant, but they added Kevin Durant. And this idea of the super team, when you add these guys together and create these super teams, it's actually doing a disservice to the NBA. It's doing a disservice to the league. It's actually harming the other teams. 
It's harming viewership. It's not as easy to watch the NBA anymore because you know you can only watch maybe, what, two, three, four teams? <laughs> Golden State Warriors being one of them, the Lakers being one of them, or the Cavs, whatever team LeBron's on. <laughs> He's the one you're going to watch. That's my favorite player. I'm going to show my cards. <clears throat> and the reality is this, right? We can have a charitable outlook that, that Kevin Durant went to this team. No one is in the GM's office. The GM's not doing this himself, saying, hey, we want to be malicious and evil towards everybody, and we just want to create this, <laughs> this master team and just take over the entire world, right? Nobody is really doing that. But there is something on their minds, and the something that's on their minds is this. It's greatness. It's championships. It's prosperity. It's winning, right? What drives them is not this desire to be evil, but a desire to win. Let me press this home really quick for us in here. How long does it take for the effects of your costly desire to win to be worn on your spouse's face? How long does it take for the effects to be, worn, to be on the words that come from your children's lips? I know for me, it never takes long to hear that, Daddy, Daddy, you're leaving again? Daddy, Daddy, you're always gone, right? And those words are piercing. And in this effort to go and do and accomplish and win, we don't really see, like the warriors don't see, that they're doing a disservice to the things and the people around them. In our human nature, when we think about what it means to win in the world, and as we look at our homes and to our left and our right at our neighbor, the thing that drives and pushes us to more isn't exactly their loss, but it's our gain. And it seems harmless, right? We have to ask this question, what's wrong with winning? What's wrong with it? There's nothing wrong with winning in and of itself. Innately, winning, winning is harmless, except that when we win, we often have a desire to win without caution for others. We want to win at all cost. And winning without caution does at least a couple things. Number one, it isolates. And number two, it consciously or subconsciously creates neglect at best and subjugation at worst. Why? Because winning forces us to dive into this control cycle. When we win, we feel control. <laughs> We're in the lead. We have control. But then when we have control, inevitably comes this threat to our control. <laughs> Am I right? And when we have this threat to our control, we get anxious. And so what happens when we get anxious? We win some more. <laughs> We keep going, and then we win to get the control, and then our control ends up being threatened, and then when we get threatened, we feel anxious, and then we win again, and we keep going in this cycle, and we press on, and we press on at all costs. I want to show us something in the scripture uh, before we hop into Luke. I want to look at the book of Exodus. In the very first chapter of Exodus, I'm going to give a, a little bit of background first. So we know that Joseph has been sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers, um, and he gets risen to power. Uh, God is good for Joseph. And Joseph ends up being the, the, the second in command right next to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the family that he left ends up coming into Egypt for refuge. And Joseph 
after uh, 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 forgiving his brothers and welcoming his family, pleads on their behalf to Pharaoh to say, hey, let my family come in and let them rest here in Egypt. Let them live here in Egypt. And because Pharaoh loved Joseph so much, he said, absolutely. Here, take some of our finest land. Here, take some of our most lush land, right? You, you, can, you can come here, you can congregate, you can build, you can have this, you can work the land, you can pr provide for yourselves. This is all yours. Take it. Be fruitful and multiply in some sense. And so he does. But then when we get to Exodus chapter 1, we see something entirely new that happens. Starting in verse 8, it says this. You don't have to turn here. Just listen. A new king who did not know about Joseph came in power in Egypt. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They'll fight against us and they'll leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly, they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. See, Pharaoh's intention wasn't necessarily to be evil. But he sensed the threat. He sensed that he was losing control. And so in his mind, he wasn't like, yo, let's, let, let's, let's just harm all the Israelites. In his mind, he was like, yo, I want Egypt to be here 10 years from now. I want Egypt to be here 15 years from now. And this people right here seems to be posing a threat to what I foresee to be the best thing for us. So what are we going to do? Hey, let's, let's deal harshly with them wanting to do the right thing in his mind. Y'all, listen, the thing that gets us in trouble is not always the desire to be evil, but the desire to be great. It's the desire to win. When we look at where we are today, uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 6, starting in verse 12. We're going to see something entirely different. And I want to address this something different with one main question that we'll be asking the text this morning, and it's this. What does it look like to win through the eyes of Jesus? So as we answer this question, we'll go through this text, and a couple uh, sub-questions I want to ask is what does or who does Jesus want to win with? Another question is what are the characteristics of a winner? And a third one, what does it look like to be a winner? So let's start reading in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. It says this, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Okay, I want to stop right here, <laughs> and we're answering the question, who does Jesus want to win with? And we see that as Jesus enters into this text, or as Luke ushers us into this text, and he's telling us about Jesus, 
Right before this text, Jesus has been doing his ministry. He's going and healing and preaching and teaching. And he had just been doing things that the Pharisees didn't like, namely doing things on the Sabbath that he shouldn't have been doing. And so Jesus was going to get away. And he goes up to the mountain. The first thing he does is go to prayer. How many of us, when the world is pressing in on our backs, the first thing that comes to our mind is to go to God in prayer? If Jesus had to go to his father in prayer, how much more so do we need to go to our father in prayer? But I want to look at what Jesus goes to his father in prayer about, right? He's about to call out. There's this multitude of people, these these disciples who have been following Jesus since his baptism. And he's now about to call out 12 of them. I don't have 12 fingers. That was like seven, okay, if you guys are watching me. He's calling 12 of them out. And it's funny here, right, because he's going to call these 12. And look at who he calls. He calls Simon, whom he called Peter. He calls Andrew, James, and John. We know from the context in the scriptures that these individuals aren't like the most prestigious people in the scriptures. (laughs) They're common folk. Matter of fact, they're fishermen. (laughs) They're laborers, right? Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, who's a tax collector, who would have been seen by the group, you know, a, a Jewish trader, someone who's for the Roman estate, right? Not for the Jewish people. And you have this group of Jewish men who are coming together to follow this Jewish king, Jesus, and yet you have this tax collector who all the other Jewish community would have called a sinner. And so, yo, he doesn't even belong. And Jesus says, no, 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 you. <laughs> you come here. He calls Thomas who we know is Thomas the doubter, right? He doubts the resurrection of Jesus. There's James, there's Simon, who was the zealot, (laughs) who's the complete opposite of Matthew, by the way. You've got Matthew, who's trying to teeter this line between, okay, am I a Roman citizen, am I a Jew? But then you've got Simon, who's like, oh, we Jews up in here. We Jews up in here. (laughs) And he's wielding swords, and he's killing, and he's wanting to cut off ears, he's wanting to do all of that. And you got Matthew like, yo, chill, dog. I'm with you, but I'm also kind (laughs) of with you. This is the reality of the people that Jesus is trying to choose to follow him and choose to carry his word forth. You've got Judas, the son of James, also named Thaddeus, and you've got Judas, the last Judas, who turns out to be the unassuming traitor, the one who gives Jesus over for a little bit of coin, who says, yo, for the right price, I'll hand the Savior over to you. This is who Jesus is calling to carry his work forward. Now, if you were to ask me, I would have been like, yo, if I was was tasked to to, to create this team, I would have been picking the cream of the crop. But this isn't what Jesus does, right? You would think if he was wanting to win, that he would assemble a team that would, at the very least, look like they could win. (laughs) And this ragtag group don't look like they can win. You know, like sometimes you're playing sports and you look at the roster and you're like, oh, this, this guy's six foot 11. Oh, this guy's seven foot. There's nobody shorter than six four on this team. This team looks good on paper. Even if they don't produce on the field, they look good on paper. This is not even true <laughs> in the text here with the disciples, with the apostles. They don't even look good on paper because Jesus isn't even about that. But don't we know that this is the run of the mill for Jesus? In just a couple 
chapters before in Luke 3, this is what Luke tells us about the narrative of Jesus. He says this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, naming all these prestigious and powerful men, he says this next, the word of God came not to the elite, but the word of God came to John, the son of Zacchaeus or the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. When Jesus came, the Messiah, the word isn't to go to those who are in high places, but those who are in low places. It went to John, the Baptist, who was in the wilderness. Yes, that guy that was eating locusts and honey, looking like a tore-up mess. Jesus says, no, look, you're the one that's going to be paving the way. So Jesus gets away to pray and he calls his apostles and then he begins this in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon and came to hear him and to be healed in their diseases, came to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. When we go into the Beatitudes, we ask the question, what are the characteristics of a winner? And this is it right here. In verse 20, he lifted his eyes up on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is, is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Verse 22, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So a couple things to note here is that number one, this, this, this word blessed here is translated from the Greek, uh, and it means to be happy. Now, as we look at this text and we read blessed or we substitute it with the word happy, we can go through this and, and it says happy are you who are poor? Happy are you who are hungry? Happy are you who are crying? Happy are you when people hate you? How many of y'all can raise your hand right now and say that this is true of your lives? Like, happy are you when these things are true about you? I would argue not one of us. But this is what Jesus says. And another thing is that this is directed at the disciples. Yes, he's doing his ministry, but he comes to this plane. There's a parallel account in Matthew where Matthew does this, goes to the Beatitudes, and he calls it the Sermon on the Mountain. Here, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. A lot of theologians go back and forth and saying, you know, is this the same message as what was taught in Matthew, or is it a completely different message that Luke is talking about? And I think we can be sure that this is an entirely different one. This wasn't the first message that Jesus gave, and it certainly wasn't, or this wasn't the first message that Jesus gave like this. This was common of Jesus to preach. Similar things, always talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God meant what's talked about right here in the Beatitudes. It was directed at the disciples. And another thing is that this is not a hyper-spiritualized text. We tend to look at it and say, oh, yeah, 
poor in spirit. Matthew says poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Not those who are really meek, not those who are really mild, not those who are really hungry, not those who are really crying and are filled with discontent. Only if you feel those things spiritually is this text applying to us, and that's not true. We see all throughout the Old Testament that when Jesus is prophesied, it's always talking about going to the physical and materially people who are poor, who are crying. It's speaking to a very real reality of people, people who are really in need and in dire desperation for salvation. This is who Jesus came to save. In Luke 1, we get Mary's Magnificent. And it says this, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And in Luke 4, it's Jesus in the temple and he gets the scroll of Isaiah and he reads the scroll of Isaiah. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to comfort all who mourn, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a very real thing that Jesus is about. And then he stands in that temple, and he doesn't only say that, but he goes on to continue and say, hey, these words that you have heard right now are fulfilled today. They're fulfilled in me. You know, on first read, it looks like this is conceptually all wrong. Like, no, blessing doesn't come to those who can't help themselves, right? This is our Americanized idea of what it means to be blessed. Jesus stands behind you and pushes you along, along our lives. Jesus is an aid to our lives. And as long as we have that idea about who Jesus is, we'll never get the idea of what he means right here in this context. Jesus isn't an aid in our life. He is our life. But according to Jesus, this is exactly what he means. The natural state of the Christian life following after Jesus is living in a state of perpetual longing. In the midst of abundance, in the midst of extreme comfort, in the midst of brain-numbing distractions, we are called to live longing for something new, for something different, for something worthy. Not because the things on earth aren't good. They are good. God created them. But because they don't satisfy Yes, there's joy in the Christian life, but there is also this keen sense of unbelonging. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if I find myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Are we living like we were made for another world, y'all? The reason why Jesus articulates that happy are those who are not distracted by the wealth and benefits of this kingdom is because they are people who are willing and ready to receive his kingdom. And in our faith, there seems to be a lack of understanding and consistent willingness to acknowledge the emphasis that Jesus places on the marginalized. So you want to read our culture into the scriptures, but the Bible is not about a well-off people that are trying to remain well-off while still saying the name of Jesus. And it's not written by a privileged people group to another privileged people group. It is about the people in the margins, by the people in the margins, to the people in the margins, for everybody. Everyone who believes. And as we read on in verse 24, Jesus continues 
And he reverses this, or he inverts this, and he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Whoa. This is a really tough read. But as we read, I think it's important to know that Jesus isn't talking about uh, 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 he's attacking money and food and joy and affirmation outright, but he's attacking the love of these things. And by the love of these things, I mean, like, does the presence and the consumption and the reception of these things hinder your unadulterated worship to Jesus? Do you love these things? What Jesus is providing here to his listeners is not a checklist, but a gut check. <laughs> He's not saying do these things. He's saying check your heart. So we can read these woes and we can turn them actually into questions. And when we think about the rich, we can ask this question. Is the money or the riches you have leading you astray and serving as a block to the spirit of God? And about food, is the food you are eating or the hand by which you get the food or the things that you get your provision, is that serving as a block to the spirit of God? In the narrative exodus, when the Israelites got freed from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, one of the main complaints of the Israelites in the wilderness was like, we don't have any food. We don't have any water. We're not being provided for. And God is steady providing, but the longing in their heart, their desire, what they have their trust in is to go back to the oppressive land of Egypt and say, yo, at least we had fish, onions, leeks, and melons in Egypt. Why can't we just go back to Egypt when the food that we have and the hand that we get it from and our provision comes from an oppressive hand? Jesus is saying, do you value that over me, Jehovah Jireh, that is the provider? Laughter, is your laughter and apathy deterring you from caring and acting in the midst of suffering and injustice? Is your laughter and apathy deterring you from caring and acting in the midst of suffering and injustice? Woe are you you who laugh now. It's this desire for comfort. Do you close your eyes to the suffering and pain around you, around in the world, or even among your own brothers and sisters? This is what Jesus is coming after. That is shown as a lack of love, and Jesus comes to work in your heart to say, no, you must love. And as we love, our heart has to extend to others, particularly those who are suffering and those who are enduring injustice. Do you remember what Jesus' caution was to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23? It wasn't that they weren't doing the right religious things and checking off the boxes and coming to the churches and, and raising their children to grow up in the Lord. That wasn't in question. The question was this. Well, the thing Jesus says was this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he doesn't discredit. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, what Jesus is doing here is not pitting righteousness against justice, but he's making a simple claim that's been true about God all along and thus Christianity all along 
is that we are no more winners when we pursue righteousness but lack justice than we are when we pursue justice but lack righteousness. And as Charlie Dates, a prominent pastor on the south side of Chicago, puts it, he says this, righteousness without justice or justice without righteousness both creates an anemic gospel. And about affirmation, you see, Jesus isn't worried about people liking you. He's about community. He had a ton of people that liked him. He had followers galore. He's actually preaching this message to a multitude of people. He's not worried about you being liked. Here's what he's worried about. In your spheres of influence, are your words so minced with nuance that you actually have no truth or anything meaningful to say at all? In your quest for affirmation, are you content with people-pleasing? In your quest with affirmation, are you content with not saying the thing that will challenge, that will not say the thing that shows you that you stand with Jesus? In Isaiah 30, 9 through 14, it says this, For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to their seers, do not see, and to their prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. When we're seeking affirmation, we will fall into that voice and we will follow the Israelites and say, hey, yeah, we don't have to speak those things. Let's have this peace, or rather I call it a negative peace. It's not peace if it doesn't stem from the fountain of Jesus. And so the accusation is this. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise the word and you trust in oppression, and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall. It's been true in the past, and maybe it's true today, that we don't say the right thing because we don't want to hear the word. We trust in oppression and perverseness, and we rely on them. Uh, I'm going to Atlanta next summer uh, with my family. We're going to be at this church called Blueprint Church. And in Atlanta, uh, it's a beautiful city if you've never been there. But there's this civil rights museum there. And in the civil rights museum, you walk in, and the first thing you see is these TVs, these old-looking TVs from back in the 50s and 60s. And what it has on it, just replaying and replaying over and over again, is these governors and other civil people from the South saying over and over again, that they don't want to desegregate, that they don't want the schools to desegregate, they don't want the neighborhoods to desegregate, that intermixing is wrong and is devilish and is against God over and over and over and over again. The segregationists are not believing that they are inflicting harmful, unjust, and racist law and legislation, and yet they were. And so we are tasked with the responsibility, Christ followers, as identifying the same in our day. The reason it's difficult to listen to the prophetic voice of the time is because in some ways we trust and benefit from the oppression and perversiveness of the land. But to have a winning characteristic means to rightly identify these things and become 
and welcome the hard word and loosen our grip to things like the riches and the comforts and the affirmation that soothe us into prejudice and hate and division. So we have seen who Jesus wants to win with, and we have seen the characteristics of a winner. And now we have to ask, what does it look like to win? I'm going to let the text speak for itself. It says this, picking up in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, the golden rule, do so to them. And if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high, for he is, the, he is kind to the ungrateful and he is kind to the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Just this past week, uh, we had school board season in Ames, Iowa. I don't know when uh, the school board elections are here in, in Boone, but they just passed on the second. And leading up to through the election and the campaign, there was, there was such a tumultuous environment in Ames. Some would say it's been the most tumultuous that it's ever been. And I was asking around, I said, man, has it ever been this or felt this divisive for the school board elections? And longstanding teachers, longstanding staff would tell me, no. <laughs> It has never been. And coming through the year that we came through from 2020, we, we don't have to ask the question why. But we do have to look at and lay it against the text and see what, what the responsibility is. Right? I have kids now and they're going to these schools. And so I have to, I have to care about these things. And if I'm honest, and maybe some of you in here share this with me, like maybe you don't care as much as you should but we're tasked to care, right? And here's the deal, I care about them enough to know this, that I had people knocking on my door that I've never seen in my life, some that I've seen, but some that I've never seen asking, hey, can I put this sign in your yard? Will you vote for this particular candidate? I had people calling me, asking me, yo, what's, what is the experience of the minority students in the K through 12 school district in Ames, Iowa? And listen, before you hear me being dismissive, I care a ton about the candidates. I care a ton about their families. I do life with them. I work alongside them in ministry, and I live next door to some. I care a ton about the people knocking on my door and asking to put signs in my yard. Many of them are my friends. I care a ton about the, the students at the schools, not only K through 12, but I care a ton about the, the, the college students. I mentor weekly in Ames High School with young minority students, and I hold a space in my own house for minority students from the university to come in to care for their well-being. But the tension that I wrestle with in these situations, the tensions that we all wrestle with in these situations, is the tension to not be passive. 
right? We all have our convictions and we all want to live out these convictions. And we're afraid that reading this, love your enemies, is going to enforce us to be passive. But I want to lead you guys through something that the teaching in this passage as a whole relates not so much to passivity in the face of evil as to the concern for the other person. It's not passivity that Jesus is trying to highlight and love your enemies. It's concern. It's literally in the title to love. You can have your convictions and you can also love one another. This is the command. Jesus isn't asking you to not think. He's asking you to love. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors. See, the problem isn't Jesus' words. The problem is that we have been tricked into thinking it's better to be right than it is to be loving. We bought the lie that Jesus and our faith are best represented when we cling to our rights and our non-essential convictions more than we cling to the command to love our neighbor. We cling to whether or not we should wear a mask or whether or not we should have school choice or whether or not our kids are learning a, 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 a holistic history in the public schools. All of this, instead of believing in the truth that Jesus and our faith are best represented when we love one another, when we love our neighbor and our perceived enemies. This is what it looks like to win in the kingdom of God. As I conclude, the band can come back up. And I want to end with a question for you guys. What ways are you counting your wins in a way that contradicts how Jesus counts your wins? You see, we all like to win. <laughs> and most of us like to win at all costs. This is, this is the reality. But the pressing question in Luke, a couple of chapters from now in 9, Luke 9.25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? This is an ever-pressing question in the life of the Christian. But what if we died to our ideas of winning and we came alive to God's ideas of winning? If we came alive to God's idea of winning, it would radically change us. Why? Because God's idea of winning is a cross. See, this is the paradoxical truth from a baby in a manger to a savior on a cross, Jesus won it all. For Jesus to win, he had to become flesh and not the respectable flesh of an earthly king or a ruler or the rich or the common man, but actually the despised flesh and the despised flesh of a servant to bring the good news to the poor. Are you at the end of your rope this morning? Are you feeling poor in spirit? Are you feeling overwhelmed from the world? Are you hurt from seeking affirmation from everything but God? And good, because this message is for you. And right now, you're rightly placed to receive a new or receive for the first time the saving and true winning power of Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was save us of our sins. But he also worked into us a new way to be human. <laughs> He's working out in us a new humanity. You see, Jesus is, pre is presenting an entirely new way to win. 
And I think even greater than that, he's presenting us an entirely new way to be human. And isn't this the gospel message after all? Jesus died so that we can be made new, so that we could love. And surely if we can follow Jesus into eternal life in the future, we can also follow him into renewed life right now. Let me pray this be true over us today. Father, we love you. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your truth. We're grateful for your, your ministry, your ongoing ministry to come alongside the brokenhearted. We're grateful for you that, Lord, you did not see the high and lofty place that was given to you before time even existed to come out of that and come into our time and our time and space now to become low and low as a servant, to walk alongside the people that you love and care for and save. Lord, we pray that the heart that is in you is the heart that gets built up in us. Lord, we pray that we become more like you, that we become Christ imitators, Christians, little Christs. Father, working us to see these things, working us to love, working us not to only love our neighbors, but to also love our enemies. Jesus, this is easier said than done, and we know this, and we know that we can do this not apart from your spirit. So I ask that your spirit come and indwell this place and indwell us individually and cause us to walk out of these doors and walk in the newness that you have bought for us by your blood. Jesus, this is yours to do, and it's yours that we ask to do. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.